time and time, but then it was with Dr. Lewis talking about um, the story of his own life, but also the Spurtus, and uh, some reflections on what's been happening in the last few days in light of Charlottesville. So we're really honored to have him. Before I fully, fully introduce him, though, we have Janita come up uh, and read the scripture. Sorry. <laughs> Morning. Uh, today's scripture reading comes from the book of James, a challenge to Jesus' followers about how we treat all of our neighbors. My brothers and sisters, do, with your, do you, with your acts of favoritism, really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, have a seat here, please, while to the one who is poor you say, stand there or sit at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him, but you have dishonored the poor. And it is not the rich, is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blast me, the excellent name that has was invoked over you? You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The word of God for the people of God. So uh, as I noted, for those who don't know the history of Urban Village, we started worshiping in March of 2010, and we made the decision at the end of 2009 that we would start uh, worship in that spring. And so as we looked around for different locations in the South Loop to worship, someone had said, you should check out Spurtus, and we didn't really know what Spurtus was. And we walked into the auditorium, and we're kind of blown away uh, by the space. Uh, and we thought it was slightly more than what our budget originally had, had said, but we thought, you know what, let's go for it. And because we were so taken with the space. Uh, and for those of you who remember uh, when we worshiped in the auditorium, have, I know very fond memories of that. Um, we worshiped in the auditorium for about four years. And then uh, as many of you, some of you know, at our site, we've moved around a bit since then, but came back to Spurtis uh, in, in March. Text this week and the emphasis on a lot of the sermons that we'll all be preaching are really focusing on uh, our neighborhoods and focusing on who is in our neighborhoods, who are we paying attention to, who are we listening to. And as I was reflecting on it, I had to kind of sheepishly admit to myself that we've never really had someone from Spurtis come and talk about what Spurtis is, because I think that's often a question that people will ask. What exactly is Spurtis? Uh, and so I thought, what a great opportunity for us to explore. Uh, our neighbor here, uh, our friends at, at Spurtis and, and Dr. Lewis, and so we're really happy to have him here uh, with us today. Again, he is president and CEO of Spurtis, also as a professor of contemporary uh, Judaism here for the school, uh, has uh, written many things, including a couple books, uh, called, what is called Models of Meetings in the History of Jewish Leadership and From Sanctuary to Boardroom, A Jewish Approach to Leadership. Uh, leadership is uh, one of his emphases. Uh, and so we are really happy to have him here with us today. So would you please uh, welcome Dr. Lewis. Hello. 
That was not Heidi Gabby. Oh, there okay, go. great. Yep. My Cracker Jack uh, AV uh, team here has made sure the mic is off when I get to speak. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, thank you for being with us, uh, Dr. Lewis. And I think the first question, the very basic question, is that probably a lot of folks don't really know. They know that Spurtis is somehow connected to Judaism, but beyond that, uh, they're not sure. So if you can just talk a little bit about how Spurtis came to be and uh, how does it serve Chicago today? Okay, I'll try. Um, give me the high side because I should be able to answer that question about an hour and then uh, <laughs> we'll move on. Uh, first, I should thank you for choosing um, Spurtis. I know we've been uh, partners uh, for a number of years, as you indicated. Um, we're proud of this facility and prouder still of what goes on inside of this facility. Um, so thank you for um, for being at Spurtis on a weekly basis. We look forward to a long association. So a bit of context and background. Um, most, uh, here's a topic that's not the least bit controversial today. Um, for any of you who are the children or grandchildren of immigrants, uh, you will um, probably know that in the years between 1880 and 1920, large numbers of individuals from Eastern Europe came to the United States before the laws changed in 1924. And so you have waves of not everyone represented in this room, but Italians, Irish, Scotsmen, Brits, um, and large numbers of Eastern European Jews uh, all came to the United States in search of everything uh, we know to be the American dream uh, in those years between 1880 and 1920. Um, for the American Jewish community, what that meant is that we now had to consider and contemplate the educational um, opportunities for the children and grandchildren of now English, of, of the English-speaking children and grandchildren of immigrants who came from uh, Eastern Europe. This institution was founded in 1924, so you can see sort of where it fits in the historical timeline, and it was originally known as the College of Jewish Studies. Spurtis, which is the name of a donor family, like Harvard, but not quite like Harvard. Um, uh, the Spurtis family um, supported the College of Jewish Studies, and in the 70s, we actually changed the name of the institution. But in its origins, Spurtis was an institution designed to train English-speaking religious school teachers, supplementary religious school teachers, for the children and grandchildren of these waves of immigrants. There were five such institutions around the country, Baltimore, New York, Boston, so on and so forth. Um, and we are, are now one of only two that continue, uh, that have survived a variety of shifts in sociology and demography over the years. That's a bit about our history. Um, who we are today is a, um, an accredited graduate institute 
providing master's and doctoral degrees in a variety of Jewish studies and what we also call Jewish professional studies, those women and men who work in the um, organizations of American Jewish life. Um, we uh, offer five master's degrees, two doctoral degrees. We have students from 26 American states and nine foreign countries. Our modes of delivery are a combination of uh, distance learning and in-residence learning. So there will be Sundays when you might be here and you'll also see a whole bunch of distance learning students that have descended on the institute for week-long periods of study. In addition to our graduate programs, we offer a broad array of what we call public programs, that is non-degree educational offerings that range from mini courses to Sunday afternoon lectures to film festivals. We're deeply engaged with arts and culture as part of the Jewish experience. Um, we are, and this is sometimes difficult uh, for uh, many people to realize, our official name is Spertus Institute for Jewish Learning and Leadership. Um, we are not a seminary. We do not train or ordain clergy. Large numbers of our faculty members are not Jewish. Um, but probably our star Hebrew teacher is not Jewish. Um, <clears throat> our students, some are Jews, some are not Jews. In our doctoral programs, we frequently have clergy of other faiths who study at Spertus. Um, and so uh, we think of ourselves as an academic institution that plumbs the depths of critical Jewish studies, as you would find in the university context. Uh, as I mentioned, we don't ordain. We are not um, associated with any one of the standing synagogue movements in American Judaism. We're not, we don't have uh, a particular ideological perspective when it comes to Jewish practice. Um, our faculty and our students are right, center, and left within sort of theological constructs and practices. We are about the training and development of people who are interested in deep exploration of Jewish studies on an academic level, and we provide a whole series of programs, uh, we were talking about this before, dedicated to the training and development of nonprofit leaders who work largely but not exclusively in the American Jewish community. I think it's a good place to hit the pause button. <laughs> One of the things I would recommend Dr. Lewis's uh, website, uh, it's howlewis.com. Uh, right, right. <laughs> uh, there we go. Uh, I, often we'll blog in, in re response to current events. And so I'd be amiss if I didn't ask you about your own reflections uh, on the last few days, particularly in light of, of Charlottesville and um, how you have been reflecting on this. And um, I don't know if you've written about it yet uh, or not, but I think we'd all love to hear some of your own personal reflections. What's happened? <laughs> A few things. Um, so uh, when you run a 501c3, that is a tax-exempt organization, 
you have been um, sensitized over the years to um, keep political commentary to a minimum. So could you just close that door? <laughs> uh, Chris, as you point out, my academic area has to do with leadership. And, uh, um, and when we see some, I'll be happy to point it out. Um, for, for, for starters, though I do think we have some examples of people, both in the grassroots and elected officials, who are starting to grapple with those issues. I, I don't know why every time I say what I'm about to say, I get curious reactions, but I have never operated under the illusion that politicians are necessarily leaders. And so I, I, I have standards that I believe those of us who lead in business, in our own family lives, in the public square, um, the metrics that I believe we should look at when evaluating leaders. Um, you don't need me to tell you that our elected officials are sometimes capable of good leadership and are other times capable of winning re-election or serving their constituents in, in some way, shape, or fashion. Clearly, I sit where many of you sit, which is, you know, I'm sort of afraid to turn on the news every day uh, to find out uh, where things are going. I, however, uh, perhaps because I'm trained as an academic, I have uh, issues with the left as well as the right on um, some of the hot issues of our day, and uh, it is you know, perhaps a sign of the times in which we get our news from people who think like we do. We hang out in large measure with people who think like we do. Um, I think we're, I think we pay a price for that. And so I've spent a lot of my academic work as well as my personal inquiry um, trying to engage with people whose opinions I know on the front end I don't agree with and uh, who I know don't agree with me. We were talking just before, I have a vacation home in uh, Western North Carolina, and though in Asheville, uh, though Asheville itself is you know a hotbed of liberal and progressive thinking, five miles outside of Asheville is more like you know deliverance country in some, some ways, for those of you who remember the, the movie, and so, Probably none of you in <laughs> the movie, but it's it's out on um, Blu-ray or whatever. Uh, yeah, right. Um, uh, but I do. I, I think it's important for those of us who really lead um, to spend time talking to people on other sides of, of what's happening. So I haven't yet written about it, although I've written related pieces about um, how we need to challenge ourselves to spend time with people who don't think like we do and get data points from people who don't think like we do. Less because I believe in moral equivalence, let's be clear, I do not believe in moral equivalence. And what upset lots of us about last week is any attempt to suggest moral relativism or anything like that, which I, I disdain. 
On the other hand, I do think um, if I'm gonna be seriously involved in the life of a city and a community, um, I have an obligation to spend some time listening, you know, the old expression about God give us two ears and one mouth and we should use them in that proportion. Um, so there's a, uh, there's a, uh, um, a church that we pass when we're in Asheville all the time and the marquee says, uh, let's see if I can get this right, uh, try tasting your words before you spit them out and so, uh, which I sort of like, and I, so I, I've tried to spend a lot of time in my academic and personal work uh, listening to others on issues of this past week and others. Yeah. For those who don't know, one quick thing too I want to mention, uh, James, if you could put up the slide, if any of you, I've got a couple of questions too, but if any of you have questions that you want to ask Dr. Lewis, uh, that's my cell phone, so uh, we can also, if you can raise your hand, but if, if you'd rather text that question, you're welcome to do that too uh, in the midst of our in the midst of our conversation. Um, the, for those who don't know, the, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but the Spurtis logo uh, underneath in Hebrew is let there be light. Yes. Uh, and so um, I'm always interested for folks uh, in the time when it seems like there is little uh, example of light in the world, um, how do you persevere and what gives you hope so that you can both individually and helping Spurtis live into that mission? Um, so, somebody have a, I have it on my phone, but somebody have a quick copy of the book of Genesis here? Um, I can pull it out on my phone. But, but I think I can, actually I think I can do this by heart. Check me if I'm wrong. Um, I believe that the first time the phrase in Hebrew, Yehi Or, let there be light, which is our logo, appears is, uh, is following a description um, which says that darkness hovered over the face of the earth. Choshech api tahon. On the darkness on, uh, on, on the, um, the unformed mass. And then God says, let there be light. So, um, it doesn't take much to say let there be light when things are going well, right? The, uh, the, in Judaism we have this concept of partnering with the divine to improve the world, tikkun olam, repairing the world as God's partner, right? The, the, the real difficult work of bringing light into the world presupposes that there's darkness. If things were the way we wanted them to, the command, yehi or, in Hebrew, let there be light, um, would be like breathe. You're gonna breathe anyway. The real challenge is bringing light in. So what gives me sauce? Listen, I work with some of the most incredible graduate students, women and men, who are interested in making a difference in the world through a faith-based approach married to science and rationality and progressivism. That gives me hope 
as exemplars of light bringers. Um, and while, listen, I, I do not sit in front of you as some uh, naive Nelly who believes that it's all great out there. It's not all great out there. But uh, one of the challenges for those of us who are dedicated to bringing light is, I think, to recognize that this is exactly the time when we bring light. We had lots of opportunities only a year ago to bring light and people stayed home, people didn't work hard. There were lots of light bringing opportunities. I think that those of us who are committed to being God's partner, whatever your theology is, um, need to understand that we have responsibility for living those words, let there be light, precisely when things look pretty grim. Yeah. Any questions before I ask another one? Anyone wants to lift up and offer a question? We don't have to text, we're right here. <laughs> <laughs> it's a funny commentary. How do you, can I ask for you, uh, in your own spiritual life, what are things that help um, nurture you so that you can be uh, a light bearer in the world? There's a um, classical Jewish text uh, found in the Talmud, a, a, a remarkable compilation of debates between rabbinic scholars uh, somewhere between the first century BC and the fifth century of the Common Era. And one of the great rabbinic debates asks the question, what's more important, uh, learning or doing? And rabbinic sages on either side of that aisle argue in favor of doing is more important, or learning is more important. And the majority opinion, and the great thing about the Talmudic tradition, which probably tells you everything you need to know about how I see the world, the great thing about the rabbinic tradition is that it never forces a dominant opinion. The Talmud, if you've ever seen a page of the Talmud, um, you will see majority and minority opinions preserved on the same page. And students of the Talmud, the rabbinic literature, study both majority and minority opinions and there's never any need to resolve the issue. So for me, um, that says a lot about my spiritual quest. In this argument about which is more important, learning or doing, the majority opinion, notice not the opinion you have to have, just the majority opinion of those scholars at that time say that learning is more important because it leads to doing. I've always found that a meaningful thing. I'm an academic. I am dedicated to plumbing the depths of classical and contemporary Jewish text. I'm not a theologian. I don't, as I tell my graduate students, I don't get a commission for how you believe or how you practice, right? I get paid for making sure you can unpack material 
and use it as ways of furthering your own journey, furthering your own quest. So in a world that insists that one size has to fit all, I come from a religious tradition which has an impact on my spiritual approach that says, no, one size need not fit all. I need to understand what you say. I need to listen more than I speak. I need to be willing to reaffirm my position or change it based on data, input, whatever we would call it in the ancient context. But in the end, it is about the process of seeking to uncover what God wants for us in our world rather than claiming unique and particular ownership of the one right way. There's a, there's a great Lincoln, if you ever want to read, he's not Rabbi Lincoln, but still he's an important source of uh, <laughs> inspiration for me. There's a great Lincoln written around the time of the Civil War in which he argues that both sides claim, both sides, North and South, claim God on their side. God can't be on both sides, right? I get nervous about people who invoke the divine opinion on how I do. I spend my life trying to study and learn and uncover and engage with others. Uh, I got a couple of texts. Uh, here's the first one. How do you uh, how do you discuss your religion with others, particularly those who don't uh, believe the same as you do, when there is such a loud voice speaking publicly, ideas that not only that you can't endorse, but go counter to what you really believe. Countering it with an example doesn't seem to break through the negativity. Give me the opening of that. How do you dis uh, discuss your religion with others um, who don't believe the same as you do when there's such a loud voice speaking publicly uh, ideas that not only you can't endorse, but go counter to what you really believe? So I'm guessing right. here. Okay. I, I, I think I got it, and if not, you can identify yourself. <laughs> and then answer the question. And then I'll try to do a better job answering the question. Um, so, I, you know, I don't think I discuss my religion in public out of context. It's not that important to me that people see the world the same way I do. When it comes up either in a classroom or in a conversation or dare I say, over a single malt or two, um, we have, uh, then I'm happy. We have meaningful conversation with people left, right, and center. And I do, I have, I, I consider, I'm proud to have conversations with people who I know I don't agree with. But that usually is in relationship. It's, it's as part of a conversation. I'm not a big, um, and historically, Judaism as a tradition has not been a big proselytizing faith, a faith that sort of um, uh, derives legitimacy when others agree. M maybe it's a reflection of the Jewish experience writ large, uh, but I don't, it's not important for me that I walk around with the functional equivalent of a theological sandwich board. Um, I'm, I'm happy to engage. I go back to that text that learning is more important than doing because learning leads to doing. And so my style and approach is more, uh, more focused on learning, studying the text together, um, debating it. This is a very Jewish 
um, approach to biblical text or other text. There's a, there's a Hebrew word, or actually it's an Aramaic word, called chavruta. comes from a Hebrew word chaver, meaning friend. It believes that the way we study a text is together, not teacher and student, not one size fits all, but when you and I engage with the same text, in much the same way that you and I could go to a movie, see the same movie and come back with different interpretations and different conclusions, that's how we, in, in, in a Jewish context, God is found when two people are engaging in a serious attempt to unpack and study a text. For me, that's a much more comfortable way of talking about my religious faith than, you know, more traditional proselytizing, which is not something I'm comfortable with, and I don't think historically has been part of the Jewish experience. There's a uh, very... Uh, There's a question actually... Oh, okay. I one kind of going... Uh, Going off this, Dr. Lewis, I know in, um, there's a trend in academic studies to want to to uh, kind of group Abrahamic faiths together. And it's been in my own studies of, of, of Islam, for example, um, that uh, there are major differences in those faiths. Like there's plenty of Christians who would say like, Christianity and Islam, we do not believe at at the base of things, uh, the same presuppositions about like, for example, who Christ is very important. Right. Of Christian faith. So I, I assume I know how you'll respond to this, but um, when you approach people who you maybe disagree with, do you feel it's important to state those differences up front and to be honest about those, or do you try to emphasize your commonalities with one another? That's a terrific question. First of all, let me clarify, I don't approach people. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, it, I wasn't... Also, because I'm not friendly, but that's not what I meant. Uh, no, that's not what I meant. I, mean, I do not consider it part of my religious obligation to convince people why they're wrong and why I'm right. It's a triumphalist worldview that is simply, I know it exists. And by the way, let me be clear. I know that some of my further to the right co-religionists would necessarily disagree with me. It's a whole subsection, although that's, to be fair, that's usually targeted at, at other Jews, not other people. So I do not approach people in the way your question presupposes. However, I think your question gets to a bigger issue. In dialogue, in conversation, yes, I am the product, my doctoral advisor, now deceased Byron Sherwin, who taught at this institution for many years, used to say, be very nervous about the catch-all phrase Judeo-Christian tradition, or be very nervous about Abrahamic faiths. We share things in common, perhaps monotheism, I say perhaps there's some theologians would understand that quite differently. We have a I think a shared ethical code in some ways, but not in other ways. Um, and we disagree on major issues. I am not a round the edge kind of guy. I would much rather deal with you understanding your perspective and have you understand my perspective than to sort of pretend those things don't go away, sweep them under the carpet, grab hands, 
sing Kumbaya, and suggest that we all see the world the same way. Sorry for the Kumbaya fans. Um, um, so, again, it's important that the audience keep in mind that I'm classically trained as an academic. I'm not clergy. I play clergy on TV, but I'm not, I'm not clergy. Um, and so my approach is that you would find traditionally in a university context, um, which tolerates, sorry, it doesn't really tolerate that much anymore, but at its best, tolerates robust debate and civil discourse um, without uh, needing to win. And uh, so, uh, to the best that I'm aware of how I engage in these conversations, I, um, I see no, no reason for throwing something in someone's face. We're having a conversation. But I see no reason to sort of round the edges and make genuine differences of opinion go away. Genuine differences of opinion are keys to what brings us to our faith-based orientation, to our positions we take in a variety of reasons. Um, so, I don't know, I, I hope that's responsive. Okay, I'm gonna end with one, one more question from um, a text. Um, do you see any value in responding to violence with violence in the context of anti-Nazi activism? Wow. Um, so let me first say, I don't really think I've given that a lot of thought. Um, Jewish tradition has this concept of rodev, um, which is translates as pursuer. The Bible actually talks about this, that if one is being pursued uh, at the threat of one's life, one has an obligation um, to defend oneself. Um, I have no sense that we're anywhere near that at a rally that justifies violence against hateful ideologies. Um, I can't, I can't promise you that if I were in Charlottesville and somebody took a punch at me, I wouldn't punch back. I mean, I'm not a pacifist, I'm not, you know, I want, I want to be clear. Um, on the other hand, you know, I have real concerns about thinking that we're going to deal with this issue um, by uh, by engaging in the kind of violence that we're seeing in some corners, you know, nominally on the left. Um, I just, I just, if I can just add one sort of thought that a thread that runs through this. Um, I hate what's happening, like most of you, um, but for me, it's, um, uh, it's, I think it's very problematic because some of what I hate that's happening is happening on, on the side that I nominally would feel most comfortable in, and that is a left, more progressive perspective, and I feel that's important too. I cannot quite figure out why it is that in the United States, the only thing that the far right and the far left agree on, the only thing, is that Jews are evil. I mean, this isn't fake news. Just 
read what people on the far left and the far right, we saw what say on the far right, are saying about Jews. I know it's nuanced, I know it's complicated, I know some of it is involved in disagreement with Israeli government politics, I'm not naive to these things, but we've got to be willing to call that out when it's bad on either side of the equation because if we become sort of mindless uh, supporters or partisans for one perspective or another, I think we diminish the likelihood that our own perspective is going to get traction. Yeah. We've got a couple more texts, but we also want to be cognizant of time. And so, um, Dr. Sona, thank you for being with us today. It's been uh, great to have this conversation with you. And um, I don't know if you'd like to leave right away or if you can stick around. We have about 10, 15 more minutes left of our worship. And if people wanted to perhaps um, ask any other questions of you, that would be okay. Yeah. Okay, great. I, I, I might run upstairs for a minute. Yeah. Come back down, but That'd be great. We have lots of uh, cupcakes. Because uh, <laughs> so. I need cupcakes. <laughs> <laughs> we don't thank Dr. Lewis for being here.